0: Book of Acts, chapter number six. Tonight I'd like to teach a little bit about leadership and authority. Acts chapter number six. And I'll just read the first three verses. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that we can take the time to look into the word this evening. Uh, Father, we pray you give us ears to hear and I pray that you help me to speak clearly we're so grateful that you so loved the world you gave your only begotten son redemption is a beautiful thing and we're so happy to be born again so we love you and we praise you and ask for these things in Jesus name and everyone said amen amen the book of acts is called the acts of the apostles because they deal with the things that the early apostles of the lord did explains to us by numerous examples how the gospel was preached how people came to saving faith how people were baptized in water but it also speaks to us about the organization of the early church sometimes people forget that organization is necessary in fellowships on the day of Pentecost you will recall that Peter had to preach to a number of people to explain the whole phenomenon of speaking with other tongues. The miracle was so great that in verse 41, it says they that gladly received the word were baptized and the same day 3,000 people were added to the church. Now that's significant growth because it tells us in chapter 1 there were about 120 of them gathered in one place that's not every believer that loved the lord because corinthians tells us that after the resurrection of jesus the lord appeared to about 500 or so people so we know there was a significant group of people that trusted in the lord for salvation but because of this one manifestation of the holy spirit and this one message 3,000 people came into the church. If you look at chapter 4, verse number 4, you can then see that through the ministry of the word, it says they heard it, they believed it, and then the number of the men was about 5,000. I don't know if they're speaking of man generically or they're just talking about the gender. They're just talking about the gender. You just think about wives and children and you may have a significant group of people with 15,000 or more. Let's just say it was a large company of people, and this thing was exploding, and it got larger and larger. Well, quite naturally, you're going to have growing pains. And just like people have to accommodate themselves to the growth of a family, when you go from one to adding a spouse, then you've got to accommodate one another. When you go from spouses, children, then, of course, you've got to accommodate all of those. The nice thing about growing uh, as a family, people typically get to develop their leadership skills as the growth occurs. But when you get 3,000 people in the same day, then suddenly you have problems that you didn't have before. So the church was working to try to accommodate all of these folks and minister to these people at the same time, continuing to preach the gospel. And then you can see here in in chapter six, verse one again, it talks about the increase of the disciples and the multiplication. Now, God likes multiplication. In the book of Acts, God likes addition. He likes multiplication. That's why it says, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. God's never really been into division. And subtraction, because typically where it appears in the book of Acts, there's strife and discord and fighting. And we we want to know that this is God's plan for his church. You have to have leadership. You have to have authority. If you have people, You, you can't have all all chiefs and no Indians when it comes to the family or when it comes to the church. So on the basis of all of these people says murmuring arose. Well, you know, as well as I do, you get more than two people together and you're going to have some kind of disagreement. Eventually, some people can't get along with themselves. I don't usually tell this story, but I did hear a preacher one time tell a story one time about division and dissent. And he said, and there's no way this story would have been true. But he said this man was stuck on an island for a very long time and said this gentleman had been there so long that he had to build some kind of a makeshift hut uh, for him to be able just to kind of have devotions in church for himself. Well, Decades later when somebody finally got around to uh, rescuing him he was taking him around the island and you know they saw the place where he held devotions over and over again and they were walking around on the other side and they saw another Building another hut kind of looked like this one, and they asked him said, "What was this one?" He said, "That was the church I used to go to." Okay, see, Some people can't get along with themselves. <laughs> there are some people that are just very very, very divisive, and, and they have to go from here to here to there, and they're not content unless they're going from one place. Uh, to another. So there arose a murmuring. And this this murmuring came about because there were too many people coming in to the fellowship quickly. And of course, it gives us the two different groups, the Grecians and the Hebrews. So we're dealing with different ethnics, ethnic groups. The Grecian people would have been folks that were either Greek speaking folks or people of Greek background or both. The Hebrew folks would have been people who were of Hebraic background or Hebrew and Aramaic speaking like that. But whenever you put people together who are of different backgrounds, sometimes different languages, do you think you can have some dissension? You, you, You better believe it. And this is what the early church had as it began to expand. Since the apostles were all of Jewish background, and they were all Hebrew speakers. And though we have the New Testament written in Greek, we know they knew Greek. If, if you're of the Hebraic background, you're feeling pretty good. But if you're coming in being grafted in as a Greek speaking person, you may wonder if whether or not all of this stuff is gonna flow towards the Hebrew people. So this is what the murmuring is all about. It, it's kinda like sometimes when you hear people say things like, you know, people who, Aren't citizens seem to have more rights than the citizens have? It's that kind of murmuring that that develops. And I'm not saying that uh, the, the arguments aren't legitimate. I'm just simply saying when you get a bunch of people coming together and there's an influx of people who have differences, you're going to have murmuring and complaints. And that's even when you have people that love the Lord Jesus Christ, because all of a sudden here's somebody coming in the church. And I mean, for the last 15 years, I have always sat there. And now here they are coming, they're sitting in my spot. I have always sat on the fourth pew on the left side facing the preacher. And you walk into the church on that morning and there's somebody else sitting in that spot who never knew that was your spot. So what do you do next week? You get there a little bit earlier. See, you get there a little bit early, because if you get there a little bit earlier, you have your seat back. If it continues like that, you'll start complaining. I can't believe these people are taking my seat and they should know that's where I always sit. So the murmuring begins and it says here because the widows were neglected. Now, widows are important in the Old Testament. They certainly are important in the church we'll give you the Old and New Testament perspective there are a number of stories in the Old Testament where widows are mentioned let's not forget Naomi the book of Ruth don't forget the lady that was a widow that God sent Elijah to to look after him let's not forget in uh, second Kings there was a woman who had a son who followed after Elisha and he died and so She went to him and said, man of God, we're poor and we don't have anything. He said, what do you have in your house? She said, a pot of oil. He said, go to all your neighbors and borrow vessels of them, not a few. She borrowed the vessels. He said, go in there, pour that pot of oil in all the vessels and the oil never ran out. So God has always had a great love for widows. And the scripture teaches in the Old Testament, we should look after them. So when you come to the New Testament, Paul says the same thing in writing to his, his sons in the faith. He said, if you have women among you who are widows, he said, they are not to be received and taken care of in the manner that you would the older ladies, because they're young enough to be remarried. But he said, if you have a widow who is of age, then the church should look after her. That means be concerned about if her roof needs to be shingled. and Be concerned if the house needs to be Painted. And think about what needs to take place there in the uh, in the uh, in the yard or whatever is taking place there at our home. So the whole point is to demonstrate that a church should have some idea about who it is that is in the fellowship. You can't know if you don't get to know people. And this is why it's good to get to know people. I've got one lady on the other side in red cloud who's a widow, when I go visit her, first thing I do is I walk right into her house and go straight to the refrigerator Mm -hmm. and open it up and see if there's food in the refrigerator. Make sure she's got something that she's nibbling on. And you say, what would you do if she didn't? And we'd make sure she had had some food. Well, these things are important because people need to know that someone loves them. And when people don't have a fellowship that cares or is concerned like that, and they don't even ask, then you don't even really feel like anybody's concerned about your well-being. So being a Christian isn't about just saying, I'm saved and sanctified, full of the Holy Ghost, I love the Lord, and let's just keep going on with God. Leadership and authority means you have to pay attention to the people that you're connected with. That's so important. <clears throat> well, it says they were being neglected. So that's not, that's not good. Uh, neglect is something that shouldn't take place in a church if it does take place and there are leaders in the church then someone's not leading like they should people ought to pay attention to what's going on the only way to do that you have to get to know people So this is why we have a lot of conversations we have a lot of handshakes and hugs and lots of visits and checking on people letting people know we love them checking on people when they're not there because all of that is essential Jesus said I know my sheep. They know my voice. I know their name. Another voice they won't listen to. But there are a whole lot of sheep that will listen to a lot of voices. But relationship is the key in a fellowship. Verse two. So there were 12. Imagine that 12 people trying to run something with close to 20,000 people in it. That's not enough people in, in leadership trying to handle that. I've got a friend who's got a church of a thousand people, and I'm sure he's probably got six that pretty much run the whole thing. Administrations differ depending on the circumstances of, of the fellowship. The church Tiffany and I came to when we left here was down in Baton Rouge. I'm sure they have at least 500 full time employees on payroll, at least. And I don't know how many times during a morning prayer meeting or before one of the radio sessions, and we were off air, uh, Brother Swagger would say something like, We really need to pray because we need by the end of today a million and a half dollars just to meet payroll. I mean, that's a pretty big problem to have, see, to make payroll. So there are a lot of people depending on uh, preachers and leaders in order for them to have their insurance coverage, or to have their salary to take care of their family, and they need everybody to be absolutely faithful. Well, verse, verse 2 again, they called all of the disciples together and said, look, we have to continue to do this Bible thing. We have to give ourselves continually to the word of God. And we cannot be doing all of these administrative things. That's what it means when it says serve tables. Well, they're they're letting them know they've been attempting to do that. All these people, they've been trying to do that. But even with them trying to do that, it's not working out. So they said, look, we don't want this to fall apart while we're trying to do this, because sometimes in trying to do everything, you don't do anything well. So a leader has to be focused. And if, if the Bible is the one thing that, that God has appointed for them to do, then they should do everything they can to give themselves to the ministry. Now, understandably, I, I know there are thousands and thousands of what we call bivocational pastors. And I have nothing but respect for anybody that can work uh, 20 hours a week, 40 hours a week, and still try to do this on top of it. Preach to people, marry the living, bury the dead, baptize the newly saved and so on and so forth. But if someone can give themselves continually to the word of God, then the word of God should be number one. It should. And they should be good at what they do, especially if that's what they're paid to do and they're called to do. There's, there's no reason at all. There's no excuse at all for anybody whose ministry is given to them by the Lord and they do it full time. And they're a terrible teacher. There's just no excuse for that. Because if, if we're focused on scripture and we're asking God to help grow us in grace and in knowledge, then we should be doing everything we can to help feed you what has made us healthy. Now, if a pastor doesn't graze well in scripture, he's not going to be able to take the sheep into those same green pastures. And the pastor who does not feed the sheep well typically does not feed himself or herself well. So if you never knew that, I just gave you some insight. See, that, that's, all, that's all that is. <clears throat> so we shouldn't leave the word of God. This is our calling. But you look out among yourselves seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost. So he tells them, you pay attention to the folks laboring amongst you. They are people with leadership qualities. These characteristics can be seen, and I want you to choose them. You select them. Now, This is always difficult. You get get a bunch of people trying to choose people to be leaders, and you start a war in the church many times. Because everybody can't agree, number one, on what... What items of leadership people ought to be looking for? They can't always agree on what qualities of leadership people ought to have in a church. I'll give you some example. I had somebody tell me one time that uh, if you're going to have somebody who's in leadership in a church, like a ruling elder, like the Presbyterians have and stuff like that, they say it should be a businessman. I said, Well, maybe we ought to at least start there. Maybe they should be Christian. Okay. Because I have met a lot of businessmen who are on the boards in churches. And believe me, they, they, they're very good with handling the finances and things like that. But if they don't know God, that's no good. That's no good. Uh, just because somebody owns a gas station doesn't necessarily mean they'll be good as an elder in the church. It, it says here, look out seven men of honest report so here are the qualifications don't get hung up on the word men because i can also take you to romans 16 verse number one and show you where phoebe was a deaconess of the church so let's not get hung up on the whole gender thing and maybe after a while we'll go there but here here are the qualifications Uh, of honest report don't you think a leader ought to be honest you, you, you can't you can't have somebody absconding with the funds. Do you know how much integrity it takes for someone in a fellowship to be a treasurer? I've got great respect for Mr. Steve and our, our other other ones. But I'm serious because if, if if you get involved with counting small amounts of money, large amounts of money, you've got to have the ability to do all of that without yielding to the temptation to want to take some of it. And then at the same time, a treasurer has to have the ability to know who gives, who doesn't give, who's faithful, who's not faithful, and then hug them and shake their hand and smile in their face, even when they, he knows they're not faithful and they're always the ones complaining about this and that. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a whole lot of integrity and honor to have a, have a position like that. Everybody who's a treasurer hasn't done it well. Some people have failed at it. Some people have gone to jail because of it. But to have the kind of wisdom that is needed, we can see here in verse three, it says the individual should be of honest report. Everybody should know they're people of integrity. So you're not dealing with novices. This should be a reputation. Well, I had a, a guy I was talking to one time, goes to another fellowship and he's on the board of that church and we were talking about finances one day, and he said something to the effect that I have found that the people who give the least are always want to help everybody spend it. That's what he told me in the church that he went to, you know. And I said, really? He said, Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot of truth to that, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be that way, because as Christians, God wants us to be faithful and good stewards over over what we have. All the years that we've been in Nebraska, I've never counted an offering. I've never made a deposit. Uh, I, I, do, I do sign checks, because since I'm the one that opened up the accounts, I do want to know where stuff is going and how that works out, because if something were to go wrong, I'd be the one that the police be showing up to see, and I've got to stick my hands up in the air. See, But, but in all the years that I've been here, I've, I haven't inquired of what someone gives, how much they give, because, you know, there are churches that every year they post it on the wall when you walk into the church, so you'll know who were all the big givers for the past year. And, of course, you walk up there and you look and here's so-and-so. They gave $60,000 in tithes last year. Then you start looking at your name and you're coming down here to the smaller numbers. <laughs> you get way down there <laughs> and it's it's embarrassing. Why do that to people? That's not that's, that's there's nothing godly about that at all. It's a matter of pride for some people to be able to show that they're doing this or they're doing that. So verse 3 then also says, "full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom." Of course, we go back to Acts chapter 2, we can see they were You go back to Acts chapter 4, you can see that they were filled. You you need to have people that have a relationship with God and are led by the spirit of God. It's, It's better to have people who know God and have a relationship with God than just to have somebody who's good in an occupation. Do you realize that when it comes to electing or selecting people, that there are, there are many people who are elected each election cycle to the city council and don't know the first thing about running a town. You know that there are people who are put on the uh, school boards and don't know anything about education. Because in America, all you need to do is submit your name. Know some people, have enough people to vote for you, and then you receive the job, whether you have a clue or not. And and a lot of people are dealing with that. It should never happen in a church like that. Why put somebody in a position of power if you know they don't have a relationship with God? And if you find a man or woman who's not faithful in church, why put them in a position to be in charge of people who are faithful? So here's somebody who comes to church once a month or once a quarter and then you want to put them in charge of all the people who are there every time the church door is open. You have set yourself up for failure. And there's going to be a whole lot of strife and a whole lot of division. Even if they don't say it in the church, they'll sit at home and they'll say that old rascal is on the board and you know he don't care nothing about God. Yeah, they'll say it at home. Yeah. So verse verse 3 says there should be wisdom the only wisdom we can bring to leadership is the wisdom that we are applying to our personal lives who i am at home is who i'm going to be running a church yeah if if i'm a terrible hubby i guarantee i'm not going to be the best pastor just it's impossible to separate separate the two Because the knowledge aspect of what we do affects the decisions that we make. And then you'll notice it says here whom we may appoint over this business. So they did not say to them, contrary to what some of the congregational churches have believed historically, they did not say have a democratic election and you just vote in anybody you want and then we'll just say, okay. They said you select some and we'll do the appointing. What if the congregation themselves are not good with scripture and don't know God, and they vote in leaders who don't even believe in the Bible as the word of God. See, that happens. So Sometimes people have to say, wait a minute. How can you select her or him if he just told you he doesn't believe in the virgin birth? Do you really want to put him in a position of leadership and give him authority? There's some churches that say, well, I'm fine with that. I don't think you ought to be a stickler for doctrine. Oh, really? I mean, we are a church. I mean, okay. (laughs) So they said, we're going to point over this business. Now, in the book of Acts, you you have basically two types of government in all the book of Acts. You have what we'll call something like a Presbyterian-style government in the first half of the book of Acts. That is, you have a plurality of elders and ministers and elders that are laboring together in the church. And then in the second half of the book of Acts, you have more of an Episcopal style. Paul is starting churches and then he appoints Timothy to stay in Ephesus. He tells Titus to stay in Crete. Those are the only two that you have in the New Testament when it comes to the description for for uh, government in the Bible. The reason we have so many different kinds of governments now is because we have different kinds of denominations. And whenever you have a, a church and it begins and you have whoever's the church planter or the organizer of the fellowship, you put people in a position of authority, like a board. If a pastor leaves, then the board is still in control. So you're looking for a new pastor, then pretty soon you're going to have a pulpit committee or selection committee or something like that. And they're going to interview a new uh, preacher. You hope that the people in leadership know what a new preacher is supposed to do. You hope that they know what a new preacher supposed to say. So he comes, he stays three or four years. Let's say he gets off on a tangent and starts saying something that isn't scriptural. and Then everybody happily asks him to leave. So now he leaves. So the board is still in control, except now the board is consolidating a little bit more power because we've got goofy preachers. And within a 100 years, then you have a situation where pastors show up in fellowships and they have very, very, little ability to lead the congregation because uh, oftentimes the deacons control it. I know from uh, my own background, with a grandma who was a mother in a Baptist church, a mother was one of those ladies sat down in the front on the right hand side with the big hats. And that was reserved just for them. And, And having preached in a whole lot of Baptist churches, I do know that Many of those deacons run the church. And I've met a whole lot in my life that weren't spiritual at all. So as we look at this in the scripture, we can see how things develop. But the key is to try to have good ministers and good pastors. Because without them, then the sheep can never flourish and develop as God wants them to. So verse number said, we'll give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. John, you may want to turn that off. It's getting a little chilly in here. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. So that is what a preacher should be involved with, building a life of prayer and learning more about scripture to be able to enrich the people that come out. I've always believed when people come to church They should leave feeling better than when they arrived. I'm not saying every message has to be inspirational and all of that. I mean, there are things that you can teach on. And of course, people feel like you're stepping on their toes. But I mean, that's an easy cure. Just move your feet. You know, that's 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 an easy cure. That's not difficult at all. But but prayer is the one thing that 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 helps a minister. Be able to have a vision that God gives. It helps him to receive the heart of God. And then when he looks into the scripture, God will help him to see things that he didn't he hadn't seen before. There's been a thousand times I've looked at scriptures I've preached before and I said, oh, my goodness, God, must, you must have put that in there last night because I never saw that. See? And that's how it should be. It, it should be a lively thing and an exciting thing. And so prayer is important. And a preacher who doesn't pray can't encourage other peoples to, to peop, people to pray. If he doesn't do it, he won't talk to anybody else about doing it. And if he doesn't read the word, he won't talk to other people about it. In one of the other towns where we have a church, the, the people in the congregation were telling me they wanted the pastor to do a Bible study during the middle of the week. Now this pastor of this particular church... He held a Sunday morning service that lasted about 40 minutes every Sunday. I know from the people who were on his board, he made about $65,000 salary, had a retirement package that did not include the insurance that they took care of. And then his vacation Package. When he'd go away, they looked after him. And then when the ladies came to him and said, we'd like you to do a, a midweek Bible study, he said a midweek Bible study. I don't have time for a Bible study. Forty five minutes a week. He's making close to one hundred thousand dollars a year in small town Nebraska. And people wonder, why is it that our churches are in the condition that they're in? You got people that don't even want to labor. They don't want to take the time. They'd rather watch television than have to dig into the scripture. They get on the Internet, pull a sermon or a Bible study off that somebody else put together, rather than them getting before God and finding fresh bread that they can prepare and serve to the people. It's important. So verse five, the saying pleased the whole multitude. Well, of course, they'd be impressed by that. They want spiritual leaders. These are kind of folks that the average Christian wants in a position of authority over them. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Ghost. So this Stephen, you know, you read about him in Chapter seven and they chose Philip. And, you know, Philip was the evangelist that had four daughters that prophesied. How'd you like to have folks on the board like this? Yeah, that'd make church exciting, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So somebody full of faith. Let's talk about that. Here is somebody that when things are going wrong, rather than him saying, well, look, I'm not sure God's going to help us on this. Maybe we ought to just back up and back away because it's not looking like it's going to work out. That's not how Stephen was. Stephen was the kind of person he would sit there and he'd tell everybody, look, let's believe God. You'll never know what God will do except we get out there and trust him. Those are the kind of people you have to have in leadership. If everybody looks at a problem and makes the problem bigger than God, then it obscures God. God becomes hidden. You no longer can see him. And all you can do is complain about the problem. But faith demands that we believe that God can do what is unseen, what is invisible to the natural eye. So Stephen was full of faith and the Holy Ghost, and then, of course, Philip. And then it gives these other names. Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So he had been part of either the Jewish faith or some other religion, but converted and came over. But even though he converted and came into Christianity, noticed that he walked with God well enough to where they wanted to put him in leadership. You can have somebody who at one time used to be a Mormon, at one time used to be a Muslim, at one time had been a Buddhist, but then they come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to appreciate the cross and redemption through the blood. And and, and they can have more of God in two years than some people who have been in church all their lives. And then they're fit for leadership positions and they can be used by the Lord. You don't ever want to quench a person's zeal, Sometimes people have zeal without knowledge, but if they have passion and they have fire and they have fervor, you can always encourage that. You you can help turn them in the right direction. That's what a leader ought to do, not try to stop them. So verse six, they set these people before the apostles and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. So now we see that this laying on of hands deal can be in connection with appointing people to ministry. And this is why there are ordination services or licensing services for preachers and also for elders. Some of these elders, of course, were also preachers. But the whole point of laying hands on them is to acknowledge publicly that they have been appointed for a specific role and to believe that the grace of God is upon them. I don't know what they prayed for these folks. I can tell you what they prayed over me. When when I was ordained, I think I was licensed as a teenager, then ordained when I was 20 or 21. But I remember when they had the whole service for me in North Carolina, they invited my parents and family to come up to the church. And all the, the ministers in that particular section, they came out for that ordination service. They all knew me because I used to preach throughout the whole region. And my pastor had just died, so he passed away maybe two months before. And so the moderator of that whole movement was going to be there. He was a guy named uh, W.K. Rayner. He just died. He had not too long ago. I think he was 95 or so. But they, they called me down and all of these preachers, maybe 50 or 60 of them or so. They're, they're down on the front row. I had selected somebody to preach. He preached the message for me. And then I came and knelt down in the middle of all of them. The moderator came and stood right in the middle of all those preachers. And I mean, as loud as it was, and there was like the dead Pentecost, the way everybody was praying and then the congregation <laughs> praying and W.K. Rainer, in the middle of all of that, you could hear him praying, Lord, bless him. Help him preach the word of God and the gospel. If he ever ceases to preach the truth, Lord, kill him. That's what he said. Got out from under his hand. <laughs> well, that's exactly what he said. I'll never forget that long as I live. Well, he understood as young as I was, it's easy to go astray. You, you, you appoint somebody and give them a, an ordination uh, paper at that At that period of his life, because I knew preachers that were in their 30s and 40s and their churches never would ordain them. Here I was in my early 20s and they giving me a paper and I could go out and do whatever I want to do. And So that that moderator was very plain. If he's not going to do the truth, Lord, just move him on out of here so he doesn't mislead a whole lot of whole lot of people. So it's important that uh, these things are done in front of people. So that there can be some acknowledgement of what is occurring. And for the congregation, it helps the congregation realize this person is respected. This person is loved. This person is being acknowledged by God here in the in the house. So verse number seven says, on account of that, the word of God increased. I'm sure it did because you have more people that are involved with other things so that they can give themselves to the ministry of the word. Uh, Since the pastor is cutting the grass, he can be visiting somebody preaching the gospel. Uh, Since there's somebody else running the food bank, then somebody else can be holding a revival or a meeting over here. See, that kind of a thing. And the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. I'm sure somebody was wondering, is this thing ever going to stop growing? Isn't that a good problem to have? I mean, just growing and growing and growing and growing. But that is exactly what God was doing. And you can even see in verse seven, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So this was so spectacular that priests who were of the Levite background walked away from the whole Levitical distinction that they had in order to come over and follow Jesus. Folks, that's a revival. I'm serious. That is a genuine revival. Now let's quickly go over to Romans 16, Romans 16 and after this if we have any questions we'll try to address ourselves to those. But we've told you that a leader ought to be someone with integrity, It shouldn't just be on the basis of of whether or not they have a good job, but they should know God, have a good relationship with God. I have met people without a high school diploma, who love the Lord, who are wise in God's scripture, and they're smarter than lawyers. It doesn't have anything to do with a person's uh, background. (coughs) Certainly that can be of benefit if you add Jesus in the middle of that. But Romans 16, verse 1, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant. Now the Greek word underlying our English word servant is the word diakonon, which is deacon. The same is what we have over in Timothy when he says anybody who wants to be a deacon, they should be the husband of one wife. But notice here we're dealing with a lady who's a servant of the church. So she's faithful. And this is a good example for ladies. Ladies can labor in the church, be faithful in church, be appointed over business in church. Verse two, receive her in the Lord as becometh saints. It's, it's, a, it's good of Christians to accept her as a believer, as a believer. She is an ambassador for the Lord, and I want you to receive her that way. And it says, and that all of you assist her in whatsoever business she has need of you. Think of that. Now that, that seems to stand contrary to, I suffer not a woman to have authority over a man. But yet here, Paul is saying quite plainly in verse number two, you assist her. It doesn't say she's going to assist you. You assist her. She's the one in the position of of having the business that requires your aid. And there's no contradiction at all. You just have to understand what Paul was writing to Timothy about in Ephesus. Let's not forget Ephesus is where the goddess Diana was worshipped. And you know, as well as I do, uh, David tells us in Psalm 27, you become what you behold. He said, I want to behold the beauty of the Lord in the temple. So if you're worshiping a goddess, do you think you're going to take on feminine qualities and characteristics? Strong feminist spirit where you have people that worship ladies, just like you can have strong masculine spirit, patriarchal spirit, when you acknowledge God as the father. So Paul had to deal with all of that with Timothy over there in Ephesus. And so here in this church, as we're looking at here and writing to the Romans, he said, you receive her and you assist her whatsoever business she has need of you. There are people who honestly, sincerely, but I think wrongly, believe that a woman can't do anything in the church, as I've told you, but fry chicken and run a vacuum. And if there's ever any kind of decision that has to be made, or if somebody has to have some kind of a vote, they pull out that old verse out of Corinthians that said, let a woman keep silence. And then they forget all about that. Paul in that same book said that women can pray and prophesy in church. Same book. Just got to reconcile the verses. But but there are some people who enjoy having ladies around who are seen, but not heard. Mm -hmm. And you know what eventually happens? The ladies stop making themselves visible altogether. Why do I need to go to a church where I'm not acknowledged? I mean, the women are half of the body of Christ. So why would we immobilize half the body of Christ and not allow them to have any say so? especially when most of the churches out here run by women anyhow, because they're more faithful than most men. It's the truth. Yeah. The men are on the tractor. The men are doing this. The men are doing that. The ladies are making sure everything holds together. And then we turn around and say, well, no, you can't put her over that. Well, Paul would disagree with you. According to verse two, he He'd not only disagree with you, he'd say you ought to help her. Help her. That's what he would say. For she has been a nourisher of many and of myself also. I don't know if I ever told you that time I was talking with a lady in, in Alexandria, Louisiana. She was a Choctaw Indian and I was on that reservation for about six weeks preaching some wonderful meetings. And she heard me say something one evening about a lady preaching. And this older lady, she I thought she was gonna have a stroke or something. You know, she, she she called me over to her house the next day or whenever it was, and had coffee and everything out, and she wanted to just make sure she just straighten out the little preacher, so that I'd understand that God can't use women to teach men and all of that. So I said, "Why do you think that?" And she she told me, and and uh, so I said, "Well, I don't think God has a problem with that." I said. Aside from the scriptural aspect, I said, I think if a man or woman is drowning in the pool, they probably don't care what the gender of the person is who's going to throw them a life buoy. I said, I don't think they care. And I said, now, from a biblical perspective, I said, in the Old Testament, didn't God have prophetesses and all of that? She said, absolutely. And I named a couple. And I said, well, Hebrew says now we have a new covenant. We have a better high priest. We have a better sacrifice. We've got a better tabernacle, better covenant. We've got all of these better things. I said, are you trying to tell me that in the new Testament it got everything got better for a man, but got worse for a woman. So even though God used women in the old Testament to preach and prophesy, God can't use them at all in the new Testament. She said, well, none of the disciples, none of the apostles were women. I said, I don't know if any of them were black. Here I am. And so finally she goes on. She starts running through all of her scriptures. And I said, let me get this straight. You're telling me that you don't believe a woman should be allowed to teach a man at all. She said, that's exactly what I believe. I said, I've been sitting here. You've been teaching me for 20 minutes. Well, She didn't like that then. She didn't like that. But it was true. For some reason, people get intimidated whenever you talk about a pulpit. But if you're standing on the corner, it's not a problem. But Paul said to the mothers, make sure you teach the younger women. Paul said to the ladies, make sure you instruct the younger ladies. Be an example. So I said, well, what difference does it matter if somebody is a lady standing on a street corner or if a lady is behind a pulpit? If a lady starts a Sunday school and gathers a bunch of kids in her house, is it okay for her to do that? Of course she can do that. I said, well, okay. at what age do the children have to be before the lady stops talking to them about Jesus? When they because I mean bar mitzvah for the boy is what, 12, 13, something like that. And they start treating him like he's a man. So you're trying to tell me that a mother can no longer even instruct her own sons in the gospel just because they've come over. You see how how much bondage this is? It's destructive. And it's been going on for a very long time. very long time. Let me finish up here. So verse two, receive her in the Lord as becoming saints. She has been a nourisher of many. And then verse three, greet Priscilla and Aquila. That's the husband and wife team who have a church in their house. You can see that in verse five. And it says in verse four, both of them have laid down their necks unto whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. This is the same Priscilla and Aquila. Man and woman, husband and wife that pulled Apollo aside and said to Apollos, you know what? You really need to learn a little bit more about this gospel. So we're both going to sit down and tell you about it. Man and woman going to sit down and tell you about it. And he learned and went on and became a great apostle in the New Testament. So a little bit on leadership and authority. Let's pray. And if we got any questions, We'll try to answer them. Father, we thank you. We love you. We appreciate you. You're wonderful. We ask you to lead us and guide us. Continue to direct our hearts more and more into your love. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen, amen, amen.